This is the Family Practice Podcast, an informal, interview-style podcast exploring the stories, experiences, and expertise of LGBTQ medical providers. I'm your host, George Fraley. Welcome to the Family Practice Podcast. Today I have with me Eric Jansen. Eric, welcome. Thanks. Nice to be here. Good. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Sure. I'm a family nurse practitioner at a community clinic here in Seattle, Washington. It's one of the federally qualified health centers um, and mainly serve Medicaid, um, uninsured, um, or folks who are getting their care through the Affordable Care Act. All right. How long have you been an MP? Um, About six years. When did you think about getting into medicine? What kind of sparked your interest? Um, I probably thought about it while I was in undergrad the first time around, okay. and, um, but was more motivated by issues around community justice um, and things about like access to healthcare, health policy. And so initially that's what I did sort of for the first part of my career um, and then ended up deciding to go back and doing something clinical. Um, So I was initially involved in things around like housing justice for folks, um, working with people who are uh, getting Section 8, um, and then doing a lot of things just around like LGBT health and access to health care, finding a competent provider, and just also getting access to care, which has been a long barrier for a lot of folks in the LGBT community. So that is like very much the nuts and bolts of a lot of people's lives um, and some of the things that really can trip up their health care, right? How, how did that past experience, how does that sort of influence how you approach care with your current patients? Um, I think I would say that that is the foundation of um, what brought me to healthcare and how I approach my work um, and what makes me passionate about what I do. Uh, just witnessing folks living in their car or not um, getting access to employment because they're trans-identified or, um, you know, back 15 and 20 years ago even, it was a lot harder to be out as somebody who identified as gay or lesbian. Mm-hmm. And so that often was tied to how we had access to healthcare was whether or not, one, we are employed, and two, whether or not it's offered by our employer. Um, and so... You know, still today, still seeing folks struggle against very similar obstacles um, and and having to, you know, even fight for things like getting coverage for um, transgender care in terms of surgeries or medicines. Um, it can be highly variable state to state. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of those same folks are still struggling economically, and so there's there's still that tie there, even though there's been a lot of progress in the last 20 years. Yeah, absolutely. How did you decide to be an MP instead of, you know, a PA or an MD or a DO or whatever? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I initially thought about medical school mm-hmm. um, and was working at a small nonprofit that was um, focused on LGBT health in Seattle and was working on prerequisites, and I had um, attended a forum that was on um, different issues around social justice within healthcare, and had gotten up and said a few things during this this kind of like community town hall, and afterward met met a man named uh, Jose Avila Perez, who is a nurse practitioner, 
And uh, he was in a program for doing his training at that time. And he's like, you would make a fantastic ARNP. And so basically, um, he was one of the folks who was one of, became one of my biggest supporters. And, um, and I also realized that I had had a lot of um, nurse practitioners and nurses in my life. And I'd also had a lot of physicians in my life who were really unhappy being physicians. <laughs> yeah. um, it's a tough job. It's, yeah. It is a tough job. And uh, it, it seems like there was a little bit more balance and flexibility maybe in the, the ARNP role and, and the PA role. Mm-hmm. Um, so I tossed those around for a little bit and just decided I would um, go the, the ARNP route. So I did an accelerated second bachelor's. Okay. Um, and then that put me right into a doctoral program to become a nurse practitioner, and I worked as an RN while I did that. Okay. How did, in, so obviously your first undergraduate set you up for sort of social justice and healthcare, and now you're working in, in a community-based clinic, mm-hmm. so that's sort of a great marriage. It is. I mean, like I said, I, I really feel like all of my experiences leading up to working at um, what I currently do really informed that experience, and uh allow me to, I think, approach my work in a more holistic manner. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of my training as, as a nurse also brings that into play and, and feels that is equally important as looking at the pathology of what may or may not be going on. But I, I've always been a little bit more tuned into health promotion, preventing illness, um, mm-hmm. working with people uh, with the, the skills and resources that they already have and, and maybe just kind of acting more as a guide for their, for their health. Mm-hmm. Um, working in a community clinic, you work with a lot of people who have many, many challenges and many barriers. Um, disproportionately seeing a lot of folks struggling with mental illness, substance abuse, um, or dependency. Um, and then, again, just the economics. You know, I, I think one of the best health policies in this country would actually be um, if there was a mandated livable wage, and that mm-hmm. would actually do a lot to improve our entire population's health, but especially those who historically have, have struggled with where they've come from financially. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's a very frustrating situation in the U.S. having uh, money determine your health outcome, Yeah, which then ends up costing the government even more money in the long run. So absolutely. Anyway, it's, it's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, What's your current patient population? Like, I know you're working in an underserved patient population basis, mm-hmm. but um, in terms of, like, LGBT folks you see, um, what, what's sort of your comfort range in your clinic? Um, I think this clinic has always served the LGBT community. Um, I certainly see a high percentage on my, my panel um, that identify with that community. Probably um, a good majority of those are trans or gender non-conforming identified folks. Um, I see um, a small panel of HIV positive folks that um, have been, you know, connected to the clinic uh, because I think it's one of the places in Seattle that has done a great job of serving HIV positive people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, I think it's a good mix. Yeah. Um, there's there are more opportunities in Seattle right now for trans folks to have access to care. Um, however, if you are uninsured or on Medicaid or Medicare, this is probably one of the um, places that people will end up. Yeah. Now, how has your personal identity shaped your 
your approach to your healthcare mm-hmm. and to the patients that you see? Um, well, I am a transgender man, and um, part of my motivation for becoming a nurse practitioner is that I wanted to serve my community um, because I know I had my own struggles with finding competent care um, and was you know, fortunate enough to be in a large city where I had more choices. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also wanted to be, you know, part of, part of the work that I did before becoming a clinician was actually educating healthcare providers and social service, social service uh, workers to improve their competency and knowledge with working with the LGBT community and especially transgender and gender nonconforming folks. Yeah. Could you, would you mind sharing with us a little bit about some of the issues you had as a patient? I mean, you have to get into too personal details, but I think that's kind of helpful because I think sometimes people don't understand what people actually come up against in the health, in the health industry. Um, sure. I'm happy to, I would probably go back to one of my first experiences as an adult with healthcare, which was, um, back in New York when I was in college, going to the, the health center on campus and having my first pap exam, mm. um, which was a horrendous experience, um, mostly at that point just identifying as queer and going with my girlfriend to both do our like first paps together, which we probably didn't even need to do at that point, but um, in just basically being met with total disgust by the practitioner mm. who we saw, who didn't come out and say that we were sinful and an abomination, but certainly made us feel as if we were. Mm. Um, and I think people always remember what they feel even more than what people say. Yeah. Um, so I think I remember the, the whole pelvic exam being really painful and unpleasant and just like this woman did not even want to be touching my body. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm, I think I probably stayed away from healthcare entirely for at least another five years after that experience. Um, and then was fortunate enough to find a medical home in Seattle um, when I had a job and I was um, working for the University of Washington. Luckily, was insured, but the only person at that time, um, back in like the mid to late 90s, that I could find who would uh, provide services for trans folks, and this is kind of when I was thinking about transitioning, um, was somebody at another community clinic. So um, and that community clinic still exists here in Seattle and still serves a large number of trans folks. Um, the, there were two physicians at that time who were providing care um, to the transgender community, one of whom no longer practices and one who still does and is my, my uh, healthcare provider to this day. Um, so, and she's part of a clinic that's known for providing care to the LGBT community and has continued to do great work and trained other people. So um, I've been really fortunate, but I think there's always been, you know, there's a fear of like what happens when I have to go to an emergency room? What happens if I need to go see a specialist? And, um, you know, obviously somebody who works in healthcare, I'm able to advocate for myself and, um, and, you know, not put up with anything less than like the best. Um, But, you know, I've had several bad experiences in emergency rooms, um, here and interestingly in San Francisco where we mm. think of like it's the place where it's this bastion of you know LGBT queerness and it takes over the city well they still can provide pretty horrible health care and you know this is in the last like five to ten years I had a, a really bad experience I got really sick when I was visiting San Francisco and as soon as I told them that testosterone was one of my medications and they I told them why 
my my healthcare, their attitude towards me completely changed. So, wow. um, ended up writing to the the administration at that hospital and never heard back. But it was oh, interesting. It was a terrible, huh. terrible experience. And luckily, I had like somebody there advocating with me because I wasn't really physically doing well enough to be in that position. But yeah, it was. Nobody should have to suffer like that. So No, and like you said, I mean, you're somebody who's knowledgeable, works in the industry, and can still experience things like that. And yeah. somebody who's, you know, accessing care for the first time or, yeah, it's very unfortunate. Yeah, and it's, it's caused, I think, a huge distrust mm-hmm. um, amongst our community. And, you know, other communities have experienced similar things. Um, but it, you know, if... As healthcare providers, if we meet a patient and we wonder why there might be this distance or even a hostility, there's there's probably a good reason why yeah. from not great past experiences. Well, I mean, and also in general, I mean, there's the the micro level of like individual experiences, but then there's also like the macro aspect of trans health, where like there's very few studies, there's very little education to healthcare providers about how to do trans health, and it and it is sort of this invisible, ignored aspect until Medicaid started covering. And now we see a lot more services uh, kind of popping up since that. But that is an interesting connection. I hadn't really thought about that connection. Yeah. I mean, but um, so all of those personal experiences that you've gone through, how does that shape your approach to your patient population? Um, Yeah. do, Do patients, do you find that patients seek you out because of that shared identity? Um, I think there, there, I do have a certain reputation potentially in, in the city, um, either from people who know me as a transgender healthcare provider, but, uh, you know, also people who might come in and, and be like, Hey, you can go see Eric Chanson and, um, he's going to meet you where you're at. Um, we use a model at the clinic called informed consent, which is basically, we discuss sort of the risks and the benefits of, um, doing a medical transition, so the initiation of hormones or, um, in some cases, androgen blockers. Mm-hmm. And um, we assess whether or not patients are able to make an informed consent. Um, we do basic lab work, basic health history, medication history, and then we meet them again in a subsequent visit and go over those things in more detail. Um, and then they decide kind of what they want to do from there. And everybody's transition happens, you know, slightly differently. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I have you know, folks who decide that they want to initiate hormones at like what might be considered a standard dose. Other people who are just interested in doing like an androgen blocker. Um, and so I think the clinic and, and, um, you know, other providers like myself, they're, we're known in the community and we're trusted in the community and, um, some people are often, you know, moving to this area because of the access that we're able to provide. That must feel good. It does feel good. I mean, yeah. that's what makes coming into work every day feel worthwhile and, and also working in a place that is supported. Um, you know, I had a prior job where it was not a welcome thing to, like, you know, have transgender people in the clinic or have mm. LGBT people in the clinic. Um and, you know, it's, it's part of a, a clinic that's part of a bigger system, but now I think that they realize um, that that's not acceptable and, and they're going to have to change with the times. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, and we've been fortunate that the times are sort of changing 
in our positive way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, you kind of mentioned that you started your personal transition in the, in the nineties. Is, did I hear that right? Yes. <laughs> um, I would say my, my journey sort of, it, it starts with kind of acknowledging that this is something that can even be a possibility. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I, I felt very hesitant and, and somewhat maybe, um, critical of accepting that there had to be this binary existence of gender mm-hmm. um, and probably, you know, didn't want to do anything in terms of a medical transition for a good five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in my, you know, personal life, I think people started recognizing where I was going with gender um, and, you know, it didn't feel, I didn't feel compelled to do anything in terms of a medical transition until things just kind of reached a point to me where it made sense. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I still felt like a gradual approach was kind of how I took it. So I started a very low dose of testosterone. Um, and then, you know, kind of slowly increased when I was like, no, this, this actually feels right. This feels like where I need to be. Um, but luckily I was in a community and had access to healthcare where that was feasible and possible. And, you know, my healthcare provider met me where I was at and, mm-hmm. um, was, you know, willing to like work with me and, and do the transition that I wanted to do. Um, and when I was able to kind of do the surgery that I wanted to do too, I had an overwhelming amount of support from like friends and family. And that was, um, you know, a few years after the fact. And I just feel so fortunate and, um, you know, there's, there's some, I guess there's something to be said, especially for like queer communities and how we construct our own families. Um, and people like surprisingly, you know, shut up when I was not expecting them to, to like, you know, here's like, here's your free airfare to like go down and do the surgery with the surgeon you want. Or, um, even before that, when I was thinking about who I wanted to do my surgery, my mind was all focused on cost. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, how is this going to be the most cost effective because I'd saved and saved and saved. Um, and the, the person who I wanted to go see for surgery was probably one of the more expensive surgeons at that time. And this is when surgeries were not being covered. Mm-hmm. Um, and it actually was, if it wasn't for a fantastic nurse who I happened to do martial arts with, who said to me, she's like, Eric, you deserve the best. It's your body. Yeah. Like this is forever. Like you want to go to the person who is the most experienced and like the results that you're going to be happiest with. And she's like, stuff will work out. Like you need to go see who you want to go see. And I'm so glad I listened to her. Mm-hmm. Um, she also happened to be married to a trans man at that time. <laughs> um, and there were sort of elders to me and, um, and sort of guiding forces in my life at that time. So, um, yeah, I mean, it takes, it takes, um, the support of others around us and, and being able to welcome that into our lives too. And, and, and also a lot of patience, but, um, yeah, I feel, I feel very fortunate to be able to like be in the place that I'm at and being able to be comfortable in my gender and my physical presentation made it like easier for me to go back to school and, Mm. um, you know, be present as myself and feel confident as, as like a whole being, as a whole person when I was able to, 
do everything I wanted to with my transition. So how was your medical education? <laughs> how did that, how, I mean, we all know how medical education is going to be hard, right? But, but how was it for you personally going through that process? It, it was a very challenging program. Um, I went to the University of Washington and had um, a really fantastic cohort of people. If it wasn't for the cohort that I had, I don't know if I would have survived, mm-hmm. uh, especially the first year it was because it was an accelerated program. It was kind of everything happening twice as fast. Yeah. Um, and I actually had this moment in, I think maybe the second week of the, of the program, I was um, sitting with a gentleman who was, I think one of three of us who identified as LGBT in some, some way, shape, or form, and he was one of the only people I came out to as transgendered in that early part of the, the program. And um, I said, oh, I just realized today's my, my anniversary of when I started my transition with testosterone. And, and he was like, oh my God, congratulations, that's so great. And one of my other cohort members had overheard this but didn't hear the part about it being my transition. And she was like, oh, your anniversary? Like, that's so great. What's the anniversary? And I felt like this deer caught in headlights. I was like, how do you say this in this particular setting? Uh-huh. And so I just sort of blurted it out. I'm like, I'm transgender. And I started taking testosterone, at, you know, this day, you know, whatever many years ago it was. And just the look on her face was kind of priceless. And amazingly, she ended up becoming one of my dearest friends. Cool. Um, so, you know, I, I had fantastic people around me there. Um, there was, on the flip side, a lot of education that needed to happen at the sort of administrative level and the clinical level, um, and that partially drove the, the project. We have to do a project as part of, you know, graduating. Um, so I focused my work on um, creating a, a curriculum for nurses, both for, like, the BSN part of the program and then the graduate part of the program to um, not create a silo so much, but how can you implement LGBT health within the existing curriculum? Because it shouldn't be like the add-on class that is optional or like the last thing we talk about every quarter or semester, Mm -hmm. which was happening over and over and over and over and over and over. And, um, you know, even the, the school of medicine was sort of much further ahead in their approach for both um, MD and PA training, and I ended up, you know, taking classes through their school to just, mostly just to kind of see what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so that, you know, was met with mixed reviews, I think. Mm. Um, but I feel like it, it helped lay a little bit more foundation and groundwork, and people have kind of taken up that work since I graduated, and so I know things have moved ahead, but... Um, Things in, in, I think, most schools of um, higher education, both in um, schools of medicine, PA schools, um, nursing, undergrad and grad programs are not where they need to be. Mm-hmm. Are you doing any work in that now as an MP out in the world? Um, well, I have the opportunity because we have students come yeah. through. Um, so the clinic where I work at actually um, is housing for medical students uh, a rotation that's uh, an LGBT health focus. Cool. Um, and so that's, I think, a bit of a pilot program. Um, but we've had, I think, maybe three or four students that started it this, um, this past school year who've come through, and so have been able to kind of help with that. 
um, I'm hoping to provide a similar opportunity for nurses in the future um, going through grad programs. Um, but, you know, it's often, it's often challenging to take students in the setting of a very fast place. Yeah, you're at a complicated busy clinic. clinic. You're at a very busy clinic. So, yeah. you know, and I think that that, you know, really drives, um, you know, a big question of like, where does funding come from? And so a lot of medical school funding is federally funded through like Medicare, um, and residency programs get their funding that way. And there's just not the same funding available for, um, for graduate nurses. Um, and a lot of folks in grad school, at least in ARNP programs, are asked to go out and find their own preceptors and their own you know, home for X amount of weeks or months. Um, and, and so that, that's a big challenge. I'm not sure you know, um, how that is in sort of the PA world, but um, for nurses, there, there aren't a lot of residency programs. There's, I think, a handful across the entire country. Um, and they're only about like a year long. So, you know, we need more funding to be able to support education in general, but then something that specific that can um, provide something that's generally not provided in grad school itself. Yeah, it's so interesting that medical training, like the clinical aspects, um, PAs and MPs and MDs are always asked to donate their time to teach. And that is really hard when you have so many other compounding uh, asks of you each day. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I agree. There needs to be some increased, um, resources put towards education. Yeah. Absolutely. It feels like if, you know, if we can fund things like endless war, why isn't there, uh, <laughs> why isn't there funding for things like basic healthcare? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and how, how have things been for you since you graduated, since you became an MP? Did you go right to the clinic that you're at now, or were you working somewhere else before that? Um, I did not. I, I wanted to. I think it, it's hard for a lot of community clinics to accept a new grad, just with the, the complexities. Yeah. Um, and so I, I continued to work as an RN just for a few months afterwards, just to have a little breathing room. And then I stayed... Um, within that same hospital slash clinic system, but I had a, a commute by ferry every day to get to work because it wasn't directly in Seattle. Um, and so that became a challenge in and of itself. Mm. Um, and, you know, it was a, it was a mixed bag. I, I liked the people that I worked with, um, but the, the days were incredibly long. Um, I think that that system was really struggling and and not quite sure what to do with um nurse practitioner who wasn't necessarily there just to serve uh physicians and mm. and kind of pick up the slack of like overflow so um a lot of systems are um asking nurse practitioners to uh, take folks that are calling in for same-day appointments mm -hmm. and not necessarily be the care managers that we're trained to be in terms of being able to shepherd a panel of patients and get to know people and build relationships. And that's really, I mean, that was one of the other driving forces of why I became a nurse practitioner is for me, it's about, it's about the relationship. It's about getting to know somebody. It's about getting to know their family, um, what's going on for them socially. And so like, again, what can I do besides I'm not just there to like write a prescription and like, you know, I'm done for the day and go on your merry way. It's I want to get to know somebody and we can get the, at the heart of things when we develop those relationships. 
Um, you know, that's another probably huge problem within our healthcare system is that it just doesn't value the relationship. It values the, the money coming in and, and out. So uh, yeah. again, another flaw within our entire system, mm-hmm. but, um, so I, you know, I spent a couple of years there and then it just wasn't, um, it wasn't becoming feasible for me to stay between the, the commute and not really doing the work that I was truly passionate about. Um, there was, you know, also I think some hesitancy again in taking care of trans folks or being being a place that might attract trans-identified people, um, which was a shame because it was also a place in that particular community that attracted people from more rural settings and small towns, um, people who would have to travel anyway for healthcare, and so I felt like it was then asking them to travel even further if that was not a place that was going to be receptive to that. Um, the good news is, is that I know that a couple of providers who are still there, um, who are either part of the LGBT community or just amazing allies are providing that care now. And so, um, they are amazing people who are hopefully going to be there for, for years to come and and they're doing good work and helping to change the the system that they're, they're staying to work in. Um, but I, you know, I think that's true in many clinics and it happens again in, in big cities. It's not just small rural America. It's not just, um, you know, out in the middle of nowhere. There's, there's, there can be health access issues in big cities still. So, um, but I do think that's part of the reason so many LGBTQ folks move to big cities. Part of it is like accessing or having the ability to maybe find somebody who is going to be accepting and cool. And it's great to see that like um, morality is starting to be served a little bit more (laughs) competently. Yes. Yes, indeed. And there are other resources obviously that tend to be in, in big cities. So, and, and LGBT communities are, um, it's usually safer to be more visible. Mm -hmm. Um, but, you know, I think even in Seattle in the last few years, how it's grown and changing, um, yeah. we're hearing more about, like, hate crimes happening and, you know, people getting beaten or, um, you know, chased down or just targeted in general. And so it's uh, even in the, the neighborhood of, you know, Capitol Hill, which has historically been the, the, the gayborhood of Seattle, it's it's in flux and it's been in flux and... So it doesn't necessarily feel like the safe space that it was for many years. Yeah. Do you, this is a little bit off topic, but I don't care. Uh, do you miss gayborhoods? Mm. You know, there's like that argument of like yeah. better acceptance, more able to live spread out. But then there was, there was like that cool part about living in a gayborhood. I don't know. I'm yeah. yeah. I, I guess I, I have mixed feelings about it, but I feel mm. like there's still a place for the gayborhood and you know, I, I personally like that sense of like, you can go to the center and find your people or your <laughs> community. Um, at, and so I, I have a little bit of sadness about that being, you know, gone and not part of our, our experience. Yeah. Um, but maybe it means that things are improved overall and safer overall. And I, I think that's my hope that that's the benefit of the change. Yeah. Okay, now, how does your work bring you joy? <laughs> hmm. um, well, I think coming to work every day and knowing that I'm working with people who are passionate about the same things and, and have chosen to work at a place where we might 
not make the same amount of money that we would at more mainstream organizations. Um, but just, you know, little things like seeing the changes that people are able to make. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been working with one patient for a couple of years now who he's actually not part of the LGBT community, um, but he was somebody who struggled for years and years and years with addiction and had spent most of his adult life in and out of jail. Um, and his most recent time out of prison, um, he found out that he was HIV positive and I was the person who gave him that news, mm-hmm. um, which is still surprising to be like, hey, at that time it was like 2016 and we're still having to tell people that they're HIV positive, which is like shocking. Mm-hmm. Um, but to just watch him not let that change like where he was in his recovery and he is just, he's climbed a mountain in the last two years. Um, so like he's on meds, he's staying on meds, his viral load's undetectable. He's like doing all this amazing work in community because he wants to help people who have had similar experience to him. He is, like, trying to find the joy every day in his life. Um, And several months ago, he had a little setback, and he said, well, if X, Y, and Z doesn't happen, then I'm just going to end it. Mm. And I'm like, what does that mean? And he's like, I'm going to kill myself. And my boundaries in that clinic visit just went out the door. I just, like, started crying. And I was like, you are breaking my heart to hear that. Like, look at all this amazing work you have done. And I was just, you know, I, I, I couldn't hold back. I was just like, you have worked so, so hard. You can get through this too. And, you know, you have X, Y, and Z resources and this support. And, you know, and he did get through it. And he, he's still coming. He likes to come in more regularly than he needs to, I think, because he looks at our clinic as, like, part of his community and part of his foundation to keep moving forward. So it's, it's patients like that seeing the successes. I mean more of every day is not seeing such a dramatic success story. Um, But there are, like, little golden nuggets like that, I would say, like, almost every day. I mean, some days are totally terrible and, like, you know, a complete, you know, mess. And you're (laughs) like, why did I even show up today? I didn't do anything. But, like, I think half of it is just showing up and being there and being present with people and... um, giving them the ability to like tell their story and like say what they need and um you know seeing the other folks around me provide that care and and also feel passionate and um being able to do it for years and years and years I mean there's some folks who've been at that clinic 25 and 30 years providing care I'm like that's pretty incredible yeah that's pretty special and to be able to work in that environment is pretty amazing yeah. Where do you see yourself in the future? What do you see yourself doing down the road? Um, I would like to get more involved with health policy. And I think through my <clears throat> experience, you know, now as somebody who's been a clinician and worked in health policy on a more local or state level, I feel like our way forward to be um, providing policies that are more progressive and supporting um, population health um, happen in those smaller levels before they're ever going to get to the federal level. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, probably finding the momentum to kind of keep things going, like 
um, I'm, you know, I mentioned the livable wage. Like, I would love to see more work happen in, like, that $15 an hour minimum wage. Um, that seems to be something that is an idea that's spreading. Um, but I'm also still really passionate about something like a single-payer healthcare mm-hmm. program. And, I, you know, I think perhaps before that ever happens on a national level, it, it would need to be more of experiments that we see state by state. Yeah. Um, so I would like to do work that promotes that. Um, and I would love to continue, um, you know, providing HIV care, LGBT health in general for as long as I'm working. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also, I want a little bit more time for family. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, and, and just, you know, kind of self-care too. So it's, I think it's just finding that balance, but I think an ideal job would be like mixing health policy and clinical work. Um, how that's going to manifest, I'm not quite sure, but um, if you have any ideas, let me know. Well, <laughs> we'll chat. Um, what else do you think we should know about you and sort of your your walk through medicine in your life? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I mentioned that I worked in um, a couple of nonprofits before returning to school. Um, that's where I got to do some of that healthcare policy, and that was actually working with like State Department of Health to help make them more competent in the care that they provided to LGBT communities across the state and worked in coalition with um, different communities of color who obviously also have LGBT folks in their populations. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, being a, a white guy working in um, LGBT health, I think, um, just allowed access to form, um, you know, solidarity basically with other groups that were struggling with similar issues like you know African Americans um, dealing with police violence dealing with violence in general um, but you know also what work was going on in those communities to support health of African American folks and how were like grants being distributed to basically the community to kind of work on things like that um, same thing with Asian Pacific Islanders Latino Hispanic um, and there was also some work with native urban Indians. So we formed this coalition many years ago, and um, it's probably some of the work that I'm most proud of is the work that we were able to do together. Um, on top of that, I also worked in research in various capacities for a while. So I was um, doing work in HIV and um, kind of the early work with some behavioral interventions and um, some of the vaccine work that was initially being developed. So this was back in late 90s, early 2000s. So, um, yeah, I think that that all kind of painted this picture of, like, figuring out what I wanted to do, and um, I'm still probably figuring out what I want to do. It's always a work in progress, but... That's what keeps things interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, you know, I feel, I feel very, very fortunate to be the, in doing the role of... Um, healthcare work that I'm doing now and it was it was a long journey and like completely worth it and um it, it feels like a good mix between sort of like science and humanities just mm-hmm. from like thinking and with an academic hat on um but you know mixing those those backgrounds um I did end up getting my master's in public health in the early 2000s so um that was, was part of the work that I did at that time too and um yeah, here I am, and 
the struggle continues. Yeah. <laughs> now, I've been asking everybody uh, what advice you would give um, an LGBT person who's thinking about going into healthcare. Mm. Um, I would, you know, look to find the community that exists in terms of like someone you might know who's LGBT identified and already doing that work. Um, and you know, see if there's any t- opportunity for you to be a mentee, um, and just connect also to like the work that might may or may not be going on in your community. Um, but also to, to know that like, we all come from a really fierce background of community that has thrived for years through many, many struggles. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, <clears throat> it was it just reminds me, I was recently reading something online. I can't remember where it was, but um, there, were, there was a discussion about um, using the LGBT phrase versus using queer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they're like, well... We couldn't call it LGBT pride anymore. We could call it queer pride, and other people are like, "No, that doesn't work at all." And he's and somebody said, "We should just we should just be the fierce community because we've been through so much shit, and mm. we are fierce." <laughs> and so, like, let's rename everything like fierce pride and like the fierce community because we've gone through so many struggles yeah. and we continue to like persevere. Um, so I, I guess part of it is like know your history if mm-hmm. you don't already know, and and that's often not told in our schools. You got to do your own work. You got to do it on your own. <laughs> yep. um, but, you know, know that you can, um, you can, you can be a positive force for change if that's something that motivates you. But I also have met a lot of folks who are LGBT identified and work in healthcare and that isn't something that ever occurred to them, which I also found fascinating that they were more driven by the science. So, I guess also just listen to whatever your passion is and you're going to like show up and be there if you just keep working hard and, and follow your passion. Absolutely. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your busy day to sit down and chat with us. Thank you. And really I it. can't wait to hear everyone's interviews. This sounds like a fantastic project. Well, thank you. Thank you for listening thank to this you. week's podcast. Please note that this podcast is about individual experiences in healthcare and may be different from what you've experienced. If you would like to share your story, please message us on our website, familypracticepodcast.com, and we'll be in touch. The information discussed in this podcast should not be used for personal medical decision making. Any views or opinions expressed in this podcast do not represent the views or opinions of any organizations mentioned. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. There'll be a new episode in your feed in about two weeks, and thank you again for listening.